Good morning again. Hope you're wide awake from the time change. I'm, I'm not that old, but I'm older than probably half our congregation. And every year, this Sunday gets harder and harder. I'm more and more tired. So I hope you're awake. Hope you're ready to hear from God's Word. Uh, whenever we start series preaching through books of the Bible, there's always a handful of passages that I am really looking forward to preaching. And this is one of those texts in the Gospel according to Luke. So I'm excited to open God's Word with you this morning to Luke chapter 7, where we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 17. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. And if you would, please follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit of God says to the church, beginning in verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nine, and His disciples and a great crowd went with Him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And Jesus said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good in Christ. Would you pray with me now as we consider God's word? Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You, Father, that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving Word of God. That we don't, Father, have to search for Your words within the Bible's words. When we read the Bible, we read Your words. The Scriptures, Father, are the very voice of God speaking to us for our good in Christ. Would You help us today, Father, to hear Your Word with ears of faith? Would You help us, Father, to hear Your Word and experience both the encouragement and the conviction, Father, both the building up and the sharpening that we need? Father, please keep me from error. Please grant Your church discernment to hold fast to the truth. Father, remind us, remind us, Lord, that Your Word never returns to You void. And Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'm sure you've heard the saying before that death is simply a natural part of life. Death is a natural part of life. We, we usually say that phrase in an attempt to comfort someone or perhaps to overcome the fear of, of dying. There's no reason to be afraid, someone might say, because death is just a part of life. And on one level, that's true, isn't it? Death is no respecter of persons. The old and the young, the rich and the poor, the memorable and the forgettable, everyone has to reckon with death. That's both sobering and frightening, which is why we often say to people, you know, death is just a natural part of life. We're we're trying to reckon with reality. We're trying to deal with what's inescapable. And and yet, there is something missing from that common sentiment, isn't there? While death is universal, 
It's actually not natural. Death's existence owes not to a natural phenomenon, but to a spiritual reality. Think about how death came into the world. In the first chapters of Genesis, the man and the woman received the sentence of death because they disobeyed God's command. They ate the fruit, and just as surely as God had said, death entered the world. Not immediately at that very moment, but certainly and without question. This is why one of the very first chapters in Genesis after the fall, I think it's chapter 5, maybe it's chapter 4, there's this refrain that says, and he died over and over and over in the genealogy there. Death is certain. And so in light of that origin, it's not actually accurate to say that death is just a natural part of life. Death is not normal, friends. It's a reminder that something has gone horribly wrong. You see, it's more than a natural phenomenon. Death is telling us something about ourselves and more importantly, something about our need for God. This is why our world honestly doesn't know what to do with death. Most people try to ignore it. Many people try to outsmart it. While some people even seek to rebrand it. And yes, that's a thing. I read a New York Times article this week about death parties. And what you do is you invite your friends over and everybody decorates your coffin before you die. That sounds like a horrible way to spend a Friday night. But it does show you how confused our world is about death. On the one hand, we say, oh, it's just natural. And yet, on the other hand, we try to ignore it, right? Or we, or we try to outsmart it, or we foolishly attempt to rebrand it. You see, deep down, even the world knows there is something wrong, but the world is also not quite sure what to do with this thing that we can't escape. And friends, all of that forms the backdrop to this passage in Luke chapter 7. Here we witness Jesus come face to face with death. And Jesus' response reveals quite clearly that He does not view death as simply a natural part of life. It's not something to be ignored or rebranded. No, in Jesus' eyes, death is something to be confronted and then overcome. This is the key to understanding the passage, friends. Jesus initiates this encounter. Did you catch that as we read? Jesus initiates this encounter. He could have easily just stepped to the side of the road and let the funeral procession pass on by. He doesn't know this woman. He could have just stood there quietly, respectfully, and then when the funeral procession passed by, he could have wagged his head and looked at Peter and said, you know, death's just a natural part of life. Jesus could have done that. But that's not the Lord's response. That's not what He does. He takes the initiative. And that's significant, friends, for understanding the text. If death is the great enemy of mankind, then this passage is Jesus calling that enemy out and saying, your days are numbered. And you're going to have to reckon with Me. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why, why does He do this? Anytime there's a unique miracle in the Gospels, you should ask yourself, why? Why is He doing this? What's the point of this episode? Well, the answer, friends, has to do with Jesus' identity. By confronting death and initiating it uh, with this confrontation, Jesus is revealing a bit more of who He is and why He has 
has come. That's what we mean when we say Jesus' identity, just who he is, why he came. In fact, you can see this emphasis on Jesus' identity in the text. It's a small thing, but it's significant. Notice in verse 13 how Luke refers to Jesus. He says, and when the Lord saw her, Luke writes. This is the first time in Luke's gospel that Jesus has been identified with the title, the Lord. Others have spoken of Jesus as the Lord, like the angels in chapter 2, but this is the first time that Luke has used this this, uh, this title for Jesus. It's the first time in the flow of the story that he's called him the Lord. And considering the events of this passage, that's not surprising that Luke would pick this time. As we're going to see in just a moment, Jesus does what only God can do. So it makes sense that his lordship is on Luke's mind as Luke narrates these events. So we could describe this passage like this, and this is where we're going to go this morning. The raising of the widow's son gives us unique insight into the lordship of Christ in three particular ways. So there's going to be three pictures in this text of Jesus' lordship. The first has to do with His compassion. The second, Jesus' power. And the third is a summary that ties it all together. So let's consider these three pictures of Jesus' Lordship. We begin in verses 11 to 14. Jesus is the Lord of compassion. Jesus is the Lord of compassion. Luke gives us the setting for the scene in the first two verses, and it's heartbreaking. Jesus heads for the town of Nine, verse 11, and a great crowd follows Him. But as Jesus approaches, he's met with a funeral procession. A young man has died and the entire town, it seems, has turned out to bury him. But it's the young man's mother who gets Luke's attention. Notice again verse 12. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Now, in Jesus' day, this woman faces a grim future. Her husband has already died. And now her son, who would have been responsible to provide for her, has died too. One commentator has described her as an orphaned parent. And that's a good way to think about it. She's alone. She's buried her husband, which is hard enough, and now she buries her son. So her future likely consists of begging and depending upon the kindness of strangers. She's alone and she's heartbroken. But the incredible good news of the passage is that the woman is actually not alone. Jesus sees her. And He responds with compassion. Notice verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her. Remember, friends, He doesn't have to do this. He could just keep walking. He has compassion. The idea is to have pity on someone or to feel sympathy for them. It's not a word that is used very often in Luke's Gospel. It's also not a word that's used very much outside of the New Testament. It's not used very often in Luke's Gospel. In fact, it's only used two other times. In Luke chapter 10, to describe the Good Samaritan, and in Luke chapter 15, to describe the father of the prodigal son. So think about that. Those are two of Jesus' most well-known parables, right? If you go out on the street and say, tell me a parable of Jesus, you're probably going to get one of those two. The Good Samaritan or the prodigal son. And they're well known because they so powerfully illustrate the compassion of God, right? The Father's heart for His people. 
Those are the only other instances in Luke where compassion is used. So when Jesus is telling those parables, He doesn't have to stretch His imagination to come up with what this is like because it flows from within Himself, you see? It's not a parable in Luke 7 that tells us God is compassionate. It's Jesus. It's not a story. It's the flesh and blood Lord who tells us that God has sympathy for His people. Jesus is compassionate towards this widow. But at the same time, friends, it's important for us to realize that Jesus' compassion is more than a feeling. It's not less than a feeling, but it's certainly more than a feeling. We need to appreciate this. So so notice the tangible steps, the the practical kind of hands-on way that Jesus demonstrates compassion to this grieving mother. To begin with, Jesus initiates the encounter as we noted a few minutes ago. He could have simply let the procession pass by, perhaps respectfully bowing His head, but Jesus doesn't do that. He took the initiative. Notice verse 14. Then Jesus came up, Luke says. He approaches her. He moves toward the widow in a display of sympathy and care. Jesus initiates. That's not all. Jesus also identifies with her hardship. This may seem a small thing, but notice also in verse 14 how Jesus touches the beer. Now this is not a closed coffin like you would see at a funeral today. This is basically a board that you lay the body on top of and then they drape a sheet over it. And then you just carry it out in the open. And according to the teaching of Judaism, this funeral beer would be ceremonially unclean. If you touch it, you're unclean. Now think about how hard that makes it to demonstrate compassion towards this grieving mother. You, you want to you be compassionate, but you also don't want to contaminate yourself. Right? So it would have been very difficult to draw near to her. And yet Jesus is undeterred. He touches the board on which the dead man is laying, which means He is coming near to the grieving mother, near enough to touch where her son is lying. Now, we're going to work out the implications of this in just a minute for the fact that Jesus touches it and He's not made unclean. We're going to work that out in a minute. But for now, just just try to imagine what this must have communicated to the widow. Sometimes I'm afraid that we read the Bible um, and forget that these are real-life human beings and that this actually happened in space and time. Right? He comes up and He touches the board on which her son is lying. He doesn't have to do that. Think of what this would have communicated to the widow. Here is a man who is not afraid to come alongside her in her time of need. Here's a man who's more concerned with her well-being than he is with ceremonial procedure. (laughs) Listen, friends, that's a powerful statement when you're in the midst of hardship. Today we would call this the ministry of presence, right? The ministry of simply being near to someone. Perhaps even including a, a touch on the arm or the hand. When my, when my own brother was in the ICU following a, a motorcycle crash, it was the friends who simply showed up to be present with my parents who encouraged them the most. Right? It was the friends who showed up and gave them a hug and then were, were, were comfortable with, with just being quiet. Those were the people that communicated care. They were compassionate. And that's what Jesus does here. So don't breeze past Jesus' hand reaching out in verse 14 and, and, touching, and touching the board 
on which the dead man lays. It's not a small thing. It's a tangible display of compassion towards this widow. Still, Jesus is not finished. Notice how the Lord's compassion doesn't leave the widow in her hopeless state. Instead, Jesus calls her to faith. Look at verse 13, where Jesus tells the widow, Do not weep. That's not a rebuke, friends, by any means. He's not rebuking her. Jesus is urging the woman to fix her eyes upon Him. He's calling her to faith. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Death, as we noted at the outset of the sermon, is a reminder that something is dreadfully wrong with the world and dreadfully wrong with us. And that means, according to the Bible, that tears are appropriate in response to death. The reason why we mourn death is because we're telling the truth to the world. This is not how it's supposed to be. Think of Jesus Himself at Lazarus' tomb. Jesus wept, did He not? So it's appropriate to weep over death. And yet, Jesus tells this widow not to weep. Why? Because Jesus intends to confront death at this moment. He knows what He's doing. He's going to deal with this. And so by telling her not to weep, he's implicitly telling her, trust me, look at me, look at me. Don't don't worry about death. Don't mourn death now. Tears are appropriate, but not today. Look at me. Trust me. He's calling the woman to fix her eyes upon him. And this, friends, is really at the heart of, of compassion. In every situation, the most compassionate thing we can do is direct people's gaze to Jesus. It's to give them Jesus. We sympathize with them by all means. We grieve. We listen. We probably listen for a lot longer than we think we need to. And then when the time is right, we lead people to the Lord who will not break a bruised reed and will not quench a smoldering wick. The most compassionate thing you can do in those moments is to lead people to the Lord. And that's what Jesus is doing here. With compassion, He's calling this widow to trust him (laughs) to trust him so put all those pieces together friends jesus initiates he identifies with the widow and he calls her to faith you see jesus is not too proud to associate with the lowly you want to do ministry for the lord in this world you need to be humble enough to associate with the brokenhearted Jesus is not too proud to associate with the lowly. He's not too busy. I mean, think about all the stuff that He could do in the next town. Right? There's probably a lot of people there who need Him, and He's not too busy to stop and to notice this person in need. Jesus receives the brokenhearted, and He shows tenderness to those who are racked with grief. And therefore, to understand Jesus' friends, you've got to see and rejoice and receive His tenderhearted compassion. If you don't see Him as the Lord of compassion, then you might not know Him at all. Or certainly not as you ought to know Him. I want to stress this. I don't want to move on from this too quickly. As we noted a moment ago, Jesus' compassion is more than a feeling. It's not less than a feeling, but it's more than a feeling. And the Lord's compassion that's on display in this passage is actually central to the Gospel. It's central to our hope in the Gospel. Think of what Jesus does in this scene. Just put it in its most simple terms. What does He do? He lowers Himself to the point of sharing the widow's grief. He stoops down and takes on her her hardship 
as His own. Friends, is this not a picture of what has happened in the Gospel? The Son of God, who possesses eternal glory with the Father, laid aside His glory and stooped down. Right? He, he, he humbled Himself. He stooped down to, to us and taking on frail human flesh, He laid down His life to save sinners who were alone and without hope in the world. Jesus humbled Himself. And having humbled Himself in this way, the Lord Jesus mercifully took up a cross where He bore the grief and the sorrows and the sins of all of His people. Why would Jesus do such a thing? Because He loves His Father and He loves His people. And that's not all. That's not all, friends. The Lord's compassion is not only a past tense reality, it continues to this day, at this very moment, even. To understand the Gospel, you have to see that the Lord is compassionate. Where is the Lord Jesus right now? He's seated at the right hand of God. And what is He doing at the Father's right hand? He's making intercession for you and for me. He's pleading before the Father on our behalf. Hebrews 7.25 Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus never takes a day off, friends. He, he never quits His ministry on your behalf and on mine. When we don't know what to pray, the Son of God prays. Do you know how sweet that is when you don't know what to pray? When all we can muster is a groaning prayer of desperation, the Lord Himself fills in the gaps, so to speak, and He gives voice to our groaning before the Father. Do you see how compassion is at the heart of the Gospel, friends? It's more than a feeling. It's central to our hope. It's central to the fact that we're saved. On one level, the reason we are saved is because Jesus is the Lord of compassion. We're redeemed because Jesus did not leave us in our hopeless state. We're redeemed because Jesus did not stand on the edge of heaven and shake His head and say, oh, you know, death is just natural. He took the initiative to move towards us. He identified with our sinful condition. And now through His Word, He calls us to faith in His name. Friends, it's a picture. It's a picture here of the great compassionate heart of the Lord for His church. How tender-hearted are the Lord's thoughts towards those who believe. If we think Him miserly or unwilling to care, then we think of Him wrongly. If you're moved by Jesus' care for the widow, and I'm utterly moved by this, then realize that He has the same care for all who trust in His name. And that's the takeaway from this this passage. The call here is not so much be like Jesus, have compassion. That's true. But that's not primary in this passage. The upshot of this passage is not be like Jesus, it's run to Jesus yourself. You go to Him with your need. That's the application. Recognize that in Christ we have an, an advocate and a refuge in our time of need. And so I don't, I don't know everything that you're facing this morning, but the Lord Jesus knows. And He hasn't remained distant or far off from you. And knowing your need, He doesn't run. The Lord Jesus more moves towards you in your time of need. And He carries our sorrows 
as His own. And therefore, we don't have to hide and we don't have to fear. That's the, that's the call of the text. Not be like Jesus, but run to Jesus yourself. We can entrust our lives to the Lord and He will not fail to meet us even if we meet Him on the way to the funeral. So Jesus is the Lord of compassion. That's the first picture that we ought to see. Amazingly though, we haven't reached the real high point of the passage. That comes in verses 14 and 15. And this is where we see the second picture of Jesus' Lordship. Jesus is the Lord over death. Jesus is the Lord over death. So let's pick back up in the narrative. Verse 13, Jesus approaches the widow and He encourages her not to weep. Verse uh, verse 14, Jesus touches the funeral bier so that the entire procession stands still. And now the pinnacle of the Lord's compassion. And it comes with a display of almighty power. Notice again verse 14. Then He came up and touched the bier and the bearers stood still. And Jesus said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, just on the surface, this is an astonishing moment. You might say that there are two resurrections here. One literal, the young man raised back to life, and the other figurative, the woman given a new a renewed hope on life. I love the fact that Luke tells us Jesus gave the man back to his mother. Right? He, he did this on her account. Right? He did this to meet her need. So just on the surface, this is astonishing. Unthinkable compassion on the one hand and almighty power on the other coming together in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's incredible, just on the surface. But if you press a little deeper, there's something even more profound uh, at work. And to see it, though, we have to go back to the Old Testament, specifically to 1 Kings 17. You may recall that 1 Kings 17 describes the ministry of Elijah, the prophet. And within the Old Testament, Elijah stands out as a man uniquely endowed with the power of God. Perhaps only Moses did mightier deeds than Elijah. If you were ranking the people who did the most jaw-dropping stuff in the Old Testament, Moses is one, Elijah is probably two. It's incredible which makes Elijah a significant figure in the Old Testament. It's why Moses and Elijah show up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. That's the pinnacle, guys. So Elijah is significant. And one of Elijah's most incredible works occurred in a place called Zarephath with a widow whose only son had died. So you can hear the echo there. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? And that's part of the point. Elijah raised a widow's son in a display of God's power, and Jesus now raises a widow's son as well. So you see, the two miracles are working in concert with one another. Luke actually uses some of the same language from 1 Kings 17, just to make his point clear. Elijah was a true messenger of God, and his miracles confirmed his message. Jesus is the true word of the Lord, and the miracle confirms his message. The two miracles are in concert Luke wants you to connect them. But there's one significant difference. If the two miracles are in concert, there's one note from Jesus' miracle that sounds different than Elijah's. There's one difference. And if we miss the difference, we miss Luke's main point. So I want you to listen to this. Listen to how Elijah 
raised the widow's son. I'm going to read from 1 Kings 17. Then Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. So, simple Bible study question. How did Elijah perform the miracle? He prayed. He prayed and God answered him. Now, listen again to Jesus' miracle. Verse 14, And Jesus said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Again, simple Bible study question. What's the difference? Jesus doesn't pray. Jesus doesn't pray. He simply commands the young man to stand up, and the young man stands up. Jesus commands the dead to rise, and the dead obey Jesus' voice. Friends, that difference, Elijah praying, Jesus not praying, friends, that difference is the glory of the text. That difference is the glory of the Son of God. Whereas Elijah prayed for God to act, Jesus simply acts on His own. Whereas Elijah asked for God's power, Jesus possesses God's power. And whereas Elijah was the conduit through which, Jesus worked, or through which God worked, Jesus is the power of God in human flesh. He doesn't need to pray. He possesses God's power on His own. And that means, friends, that the point could not be any clearer. This is no mere prophet. Jesus does what only God can do. Think about the overarching story of the Bible. There is only one person in the Bible who is able to speak life into existence. There's only one person whose words call into being things that were not. And that one person is God. The Creator of all things. The Lord of life and the Lord of glory. And here we have Jesus with only His words speaking life into existence. The man is dead. And Jesus says, get up. And He gets up. With only His words, Jesus calls into being that which is not. Friends, the reality could not be any clearer. Jesus is the Lord of life. He is the Creator. He is the Lord over death because He is the Word made flesh. The eternal Son of God. There could be no other conclusion. Those who like to read the Gospels as Jesus being merely a teacher or even a powerful miracle worker are profoundly missing the point. Jesus is God in the flesh. He does what only God can do. And we're going to reflect on that more in just a minute. But before we do that, I want, I want to pause here and, and draw out an application from this particular miracle. It's very important that we make the right connections when we try to apply Jesus' miracles to the church today. It's very important that we think carefully about how we actually build a bridge from what Jesus is doing to what we ought to do. And this, this text is really significant. Six months ago, I would not have made the application that I'm about to make right now, but I'm going to make it now because it's important that we're clear. Did you hear about the church in California that was praying for God to raise the little girl from the dead? Did you hear about that? Little girl, two years old, died. And so for a week... This church held a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week fast and prayed. They had the girl there. Prayed for God to raise her from the dead. It didn't happen. But the church cited these moments from Jesus' ministry as the basis for their decision. Their pastor even said that resurrection was at the heart of Jesus' ministry 
And so therefore, they were going to pray for the girl to be raised from the dead. She's two. Is that what this passage means for the church today? No, that's not what this passage means, friends. That's not how we build the bridge from Jesus' miracle here to the life of the church today. The application from this text is not that we, that we need more miracle-working prophets in our day who can do the things that Jesus did. That, that's not the point of this passage. No, the bridge of this passage is the power of God's Word. That's the bridge from Jesus to us. It's the power of God's Word. Friends, think about this. Think, just work through the passage in your mind. Clearly, Jesus has divine power within Himself. He speaks, and even the dead respond. But how is Jesus' power displayed in this moment? Or to ask it differently, what connects the dead man to the power of God? It's the Word of Jesus. It's the Word spoken by Jesus. Do you see it? It's through the Word of Christ that the power of God flows into this situation and brings about the work that only God can do. And friends, that's the bridge from Luke 7 to the church in 2020. That's the bridge. Listen, we don't need more prophetic displays of power. People who tell you that if the Bible were true, we would be seeing all the things today that we saw in the New Testament era. No, friend, that's just a misunderstanding of what the Bible is. The Bible is the power of God communicated to His people. We don't need more miracle-working prophets. The church in our day needs to recover the connection between the power of God and the Word of God. So the reason why so, much, so many of our churches are anemic and the reason why so much of our witness is powerless is because we've lost our moorings in the Bible. We've lost this connection. We don't need more prophets. We need the Word of God to be our only foundation and our only hope. That's, that's the takeaway from texts like this. Remember, it's through the preaching of the Gospel that God gives life to the dead. How will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will they believe unless they hear? How does God give you faith? Through the proclamation of the Gospel. Not, he gives life through His Word. And as the Gospel goes out, God works His Word to grant life to those who are there. Friends, this is why every single Sunday nearly, we are exhorting you to build your life on the Word of God. We're not interested in having a church that's just really jazzed up about knowing stuff in the Bible. We're interested in the power of God meeting you where you are, in what you need. I don't know all that you need. <laughs> And even if I did, I can't meet all of them. But God's Word can. His Word is the power given to you that you might believe and live and grow and thrive. And Jesus' Word is effective, friends. Let's not overlook this point. Humanly speaking, there's nothing more final than death. And yet, death is no match for Jesus and His Word. When Jesus speaks, life is given through His Word. Your faith may feel like it's on its last leg. You may have just a smoldering flame of faith left and yet that is no match for the Word of God. Go to the Word of God. And just as Jesus' Word was able to raise this man to life, so also His Word is enough for the life of His church today. His Word is sufficient for the needs that we face. By all means, friends, I hope our church always affirms that the Bible is authoritative, that it's true. But I also hope that we affirm that the Bible is sufficient, that it's enough. We don't need anything else. Because God's given it to us in His Word. 
And so I hope this passage renews your confidence in the life-giving, death-destroying, all-powerful Word of the Lord. The Word of God is enough. That's enough. And may we never think lightly of building our lives on the Scriptures. That's picture number two. Jesus is the Lord over death. His power flows through His Word. So let's build on His Word. So, the last picture, number three, of Jesus' Lordship. We'll conclude with this. We mentioned Jesus' identity just a minute ago. Let's come back to it here at the end. Verses 16 and 17, Jesus is the Lord of glory. Jesus is the Lord of glory. The crowd, as you might expect, is stunned at what happens. Notice verse 16, fear seized them all and they glorified God, saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited His people. In Luke's Gospel, people are gripped with fear whenever God is working with power. And that's what happens here. The crowd rightly concludes that Jesus is no ordinary man. Luke then records their conclusion. They declare that a great prophet has arisen among them and that God has visited His people. Now, on the one hand, the crowd is exactly right at this point. Jesus is the true and greater prophet. He is the prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18, the one who would be greater than Moses. He is greater than Elijah. Jesus is the Word of God in human flesh. So the crowd is right to say that a great prophet has arisen among them. The crowd is also right that God has visited them. That term visit is a theological term in Luke. It means that God has come to save His people. Just like God visited Israel in, in, uh, in Egypt in Exodus and delivered them to save them, so also the people say, God is visiting us. I mean, if you see a dead man raised to life, your only conclusion must be, God is saving His people. So on the one hand, they're exactly right. They see a little glimmer of the truth about Jesus. But on the other hand, the crowd speaks better than they know, don't they? It's true that God has visited them. But it's even more profound than what the crowd realizes. Jesus is not merely a prophet who works with God's power. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God literally walking among them. So I take it that you should read verse 16 with a bit of irony. God has visited us. Yes, He has. Better than you know. Better than you know. He's visited them in Jesus Christ, the Son of God in human flesh. And that, friends, I think, brings the passage full circle, you might say. That brings the compassion and the power together in the person of the Lord Jesus. Remember, we said at the outset, death is not simply a part of life. It's actually a spiritual reality that reminds us something has gone dreadfully wrong. We need God to make things right. And the good news of the Gospel is that with unthinkable compassion... God Himself comes with almighty power to do just that. He comes to make things right. So friends, don't miss the fact that the Son of God attends a funeral. The Word made flesh stops at a funeral. How has God defeated death? How has the Lord of glory overcome the grave? Not by remaining far off in heaven. Not by zapping death with a lightning bolt. But by coming near in the person of His Son, and enduring death Himself so that we might live. On one level, the whole key to this scene is that the Son of God attends a funeral and turns it into a celebration. 
Jesus' compassion for the widow in Luke 7 is a picture of God's compassion for sinners like us in the Gospel. In His grace, God has drawn near through Jesus Christ. He has crushed death through Jesus' resurrection. And through His Word, God gives life to those who are in His Son. You see, friends, to look in the face of Christ in the Gospels is to behold the compassionate power of God the Father. And so the most fitting conclusion to this passage is for us to fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ. If you don't know Christ today, there is only one hope for you to be saved. And that's in the Lord Jesus by trusting in His name. So won't you do that today? Turn from your sins and trust in the Lord. If you do belong to Christ, continue, my friend, to trust in Him and find your strength renewed through the One whose Word gives life to the dead. Jesus is the Lord of compassion who meets His people in their need. He's the Lord over death who crushes sin once and for all. And He's the Lord of glory given for us and for our salvation. May our hearts be encouraged in Him, friends, even into the very end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how kind You are. How kind You are. Merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Thank You, Father, that we know You through the Lord Jesus Christ. That as we witness His tender-hearted care for the widow in need, we learn something about the very heart of God. That He loves His people. And that He is near to us, Father, when we need Him most. Lord, please renew our confidence in Christ and especially in His Word. Father, help us, Father, to be encouraged, we pray, by the hope of the Gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and proclaim that Jesus is Lord.